Well, this is the Not Very Cheery podcast as we uh, try to analyse what happened with Donald Trump's really landslide victory in the Iowa caucuses uh, in America last night. And it's not cheery stuff. I mean, it sounds alarmist, but many predict that essentially America could be heading for a form of dictatorship now, since any of the constraints on Trump's behaviour, and it seems extraordinary to think there were any, uh, will now be removed second time around. So we kind of consider what that means for Europe. It's going to have to get its act together. Cooperation will have to be the name of the game. And of course, there's Britain conveniently Brexited. So we are basically outside all the action that has to happen now. Uh, we look too at the Rwanda vote that's happening tomorrow and the extraordinary thing that polls predicting a Tory uh, loss and a, and a massive Labour win at the election were actually commissioned by right-wing Tories to try to firm up the racism that sits behind the Rwanda policy that they're trying to enact with amendments in the Commons tomorrow. Those are the headlines. Now for the podcast. Hi chums and welcome to this week's Leslie Riddick podcast, which in long tradition is sponsored by uh, Strepsils, throat, throat lozenges, paracetamol and ibuprofen on, on my part. So that's the... That's things uh, the, the way things are, are uh, working out here. But Leslie did say to me that she cannot tell that I am ill. So I'm just letting you all know so I get that wave of sympathy coming over the airwaves to me later on today. Yeah. yeah. I'm not trying to be in the least. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. <clears throat> I, I'm actually speaking from a pal's house uh, in Dalgetty Bay because I was down for a doctor's appointment uh, in yeah. the hospital in Kirkcaldy and off to the Denmark film showing in Dunfermline tonight. And I just thought, you know, <clears throat> I live obviously up near the bridge uh, at the north of Fife. And again, this is the ridiculousness of our local councils. I mean, mm -hmm. the journey to go up and down is, you know, it's, it's, it's 40 to 50 minutes to kind of c cover Fife. So I thought, oh, I'll just stay down here. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in the the uh, the library and whatever in Dunfermline, right beside no, the I Abbey. Haven't. Is to bloom and die for. It's such a good, oh, right. atmospheric but warm, lovely. Is that a Carnegie place. legacy thing? Uh, no, it's not. It's, it's new. It was actually one right. of it's a new build onto the side of an old building because everything just about is Carnegie. And the thing tonight, for example, I had to change the the address about three times because it's in the Carnegie Theatre, Halbeath Road, which is out beside the motorway. Yeah, but everything's Carnegie, you know. So there's yep. a Carnegie everything else, and you, you you know you have a quick Google and you just pick up the wrong one. But no, it's it's a beautiful little spot where just beside beside the Abbey and kind of it's it's old and successfully new together. So anyway, that's where I'll be spending my day. But thanks to Esther for letting me do the podcast from here. So yeah, it's it's uh, it's grand to be on the move and find that there's friends all the way along the line. But even in the West of Fife, you know, I mean, it's. What does that mean? <laughs> no, no, it's okay. Oh no, this is this particularly scratching it. Those of us who play in the championship just now, we've got the we're playing Dunfermline coming up. And we've got Kirkcaldy rivaling us at the top. It was a funny kind of thing though, Leslie, when it was a. Uh, when the, uh, I was having to take the, the, the painkillers because you know that Proust had the Madeleine moment where that scent of the Madeleine cake took him back to his childhood. Well, I've discovered that any time I get anything like this, I get all these injuries 
coming back to haunt me when I used to play hockey and football and stuff like that. And I'm going, oh, yeah, that's the knee you did in 1981. That's the arm I broke in 1983. Oh, hello, boys, I remember you. So that's like, my Madeline moment is the, yeah, or the, or the hockey and football injuries. But, the, oh, dear. And I won't talk about the one where I was, no, I will talk about the one where I decided after a Scotland Ireland rugby match when I was at university that the best thing I was going to do was prove to my mate Roddy McDonald I could long jump across an element of Princess Street. I couldn't. <laughs> and then promptly right. stood up <laughs> and then fainted. But anyway, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I oh, know yeah. we've all done some pretty crazy things. Oh, back yeah. In the day. That was, yeah, it. Drink had been taken. Right. On that thing of feeling the pain, you see, like, I, I yes. don't know about. I don't know what order you have already decided everything today, <laughs> oh, yes. but the level of pain that comes from really knowing that Donald Trump is going to win yep. this bloody American well, election is just well. Oh. Uh, I I, really, have we swapped? Because oh, yeah, I'm well. the one that's constantly saying, "Oh well, you know, everybody's loving." No, today. no, 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 it's, no. It's I'm, almost I'm like Pollyanna are, today. I'm, people are loving this kind of, oh, God, you know, the worst could easily happen and sort of sitting nursing their fear to keep it warm. Uh, but actually, having really looked at it, I mean, well, yeah. I okay, mean, so the, where's your cheery bit then? The cheery bit is the fact that it was a caucus, you know, and as Alice said and Alice in Wonderland, what is a caucus race, even though she didn't really want to know? The, the caucuses are really odd because it's not like a primary where you've got secret balloting. What happened at Iowa was all the people who are registered Republicans, well, not all of them, about 14 per, about 14 percent of people who are registered Republicans in Iowa, uh, so about 100,000 turned out. And they mill around these rooms. And what happens at that point is candidates and candidates' representatives try and persuade them, you know, to 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 vote for their candidate. It's all done very much in public. And so in terms of actually registered Republicans, I think it was only about 14% of registered Republicans turned out. So as it happens... And I'm yeah, in minus 40 or something. Oh, yeah. But I mean, and it was still down. It was still down. See, I'm clutching at straws here. So that was only... Uh, Donald Trump got 50 per, just over 50% of the vote. For the so, first time ever. Yeah, but 50% <laughs> of them didn't... Didn't almost fifty percent didn't vote for him. Yeah, and annoyingly split evenly between the two other candidates, which yeah, means that what, there's yeah. no one that was going to yeah. have a chance of challenging him. But go on. Yeah, well, yeah, that that was the thing that was going to win. That, that was that was my big big bit there. But entrance polls. They, they took an entrance poll that, that said that three out of ten of the voters said he wouldn't be fit to serve as a president if he's convicted of crimes, and Fox News said that and they did a survey that saying that seven in ten Haley voters said they wouldn't support Trump in the general election. Now, if you're looking at that that figure there, Nikki Haley uh, got about 19%. So you've got a significant number of people there who will not, again, if Haley maintains that support, and we'll be interested to see what happens at New Hampshire, which is the genuine primary, which is coming up next. Um, we'll see what happens there. I mean, it's... Yeah, but your man... Uh, I've forgotten his name. It looks like a Sri Lankan name to me. Um, oh, Vivek Ramaswamy. Good, well done. And yep. has kind of thrown in the towel. Now, yeah. it wasn't a very big towel, but that's another 5% that he's shifting across to Trump. Mm -hmm. um, I was reading a thing this morning that was looking at the evangelical vote, which is pretty yeah. big in the whole of the states, but Iowa particularly so. Uh, because of his kind of, you know, sexist, appalling shitey behavior basically the first time around in 2016 he picked up about 20 percent of the evangelical vote mm -hmm. it's about 60 percent now 
And the worrying thing is that, you know, he seems to have moved into the areas that, you know, the kind of demographics, women, um, you know, that, that were deeply suspicious of him. And he's, the other thing about the Iowa caucuses is that, I mean, Ron DeSantis apparently spent, I mean, just millions yes. of quid on that yep. one, right? And and actually Trump never even turned up. Yep. Trump did no canvassing, no debates, no nothing. He won 50% for the first time ever in Iowa on the basis of just him, you know, mm-hmm. and, and just the whole damn lot, the court cases outstanding, the... You know, the, 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 the kind of sedition, you know, basically the attempt to kind of undo the election. I mean, when you look at I know we could sit and swap polling stuff, but, you know, it's extraordinary how many people actually think the election was stolen. It's just absolutely kind of barking, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, that was the thing that the I think it was the Washington Post said about two thirds of voters in the entrance poll to the, the caucus thought that President Biden wasn't legitimately elected in 2020. And that's apparently about what it is for the, the GOP, the Republican Party in general. Uh, but it's it gets even worse amongst Trump's base support. So we've got, I mean, Chris, I think it's about... Come on, you're the Pollyanna guy here. Yeah, I know. I mean, I just, I just think that what the other poll that shows is that Nikki Haley... In the general public, when you take into account independents and Republicans who are not keen on Trump, um, Nikki Haley is the most popular candidate, most popular candidate to defeat Joe Biden in yeah. in, in a forthcoming yeah. presidential election. So, well, well, I mean, Trump, I but think, is a shoe for bit, the Republican like, nomination. You know, when it was the Tory election contest and everybody was looking at them and thinking, you know, the lettuce and then kind of <laughs> thinking, surely, Liz Truss, come on, everybody. And then she gets elected by the Tory membership. Yeah. So that, you know, onlookers from, you know, from a more progressive background um, can can easily have, you know, favourites they would vote for. But they won't. You know, I mean, the problem is it needs to be sort of the Republican side who seem to be. I mean, many of the commentators today are saying that the, the aspect of suggesting that DeSantis or Nikki Haley had a chance, have a chance of, no, of of winning the nomination was complete nonsense, basically oh, yeah. pushed by newspapers to sort of try and basically boost sales as if there was a blooming contest. Yeah. But the thing that and, and there was I mean, there's an astonishing one where <clears throat> uh, again, in the the kind of thing about the the, the shift of the evangelical vote, uh, there was there was apparently a video that has gone fairly viral, which is, oh, is entitled yeah. God Made Trump. Yes, I thought it was a parody. I nope. saw it the first time. I thought it was a joke. And then so, I realised it was genuine. The, the voiceover says, you know, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. And then there's a bit of a kind of, you know, a bit of piano interruption. So it says, so God gave us Trump. He's a shepherd to mankind who will fight Marxists with arms strong enough to wrestle the deep state. And you think that would if, if you were talking to people who are Christians, you'd think the idea that any human thinks that they're God would just yep. ring enough alarm bells. And there was quite a few, you know, kind of ministers and everything who were suitably appalled by that. And then he's just he just, you know, walked the whole thing. And it seems people are buying that. I see also that Ron DeSantis, who, you know, um, on paper, his big push back back a little while ago was he was Trump minus the baggage. 
Yeah. You know, he's kind of, you know, right wing where it needed to be right wing, racist, let's say, just to say it there, yes, let's, uh, yeah. where he needed to be. But he hadn't been done for anything. And he was kind of a bit more of a clean cut guy. But I mean, the, the folk, you know, commentating on this today that are saying, yeah, but the problem is he might be Trump minus the baggage, but he's also Trump minus any kind of personality. Yeah. <clears throat> and they described him as reptilian and creepy. Um, with a, you know, I haven't seen him enough to, be, you know, I've got to say there's a certain reptilianness to, you know, many of those candidates, but mm -hmm. that he had a plaintive, whining sort of manner that made his hatred for racial and gender minorities look pathetic, not commanding. I mean, mm. this is what we've got to now, where we're just taking as read that you need to hate racial and gender minorities, but you need to do it with enough gumption to make it look kind of like an up thing, and. And then if you start to think about what the implications are of another Trump presidency, it's, you know, there's a very good piece by Jonathan Friedland in today's Guardian, where um, one of, you know, his, his basically he's saying there will be no more babysitting. He's saying first time round Trump, Trump didn't really know the ropes. Yeah. I mean, he was a new president, whatever. And he was surrounded by some people who, you know, I know everyone might find this hard to believe, but who vaguely knew how governance worked and had some ideas about the checks and balances and all that kind of like, no, 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 those guys have gone now. Um, they're all predicting there will be a power grab of of kind of all the agencies that um, that should be able to check and balance the presidential sort of power. Uh, there will be civil servants sacked who look like they're on the wrong, wrong side of the tracks. I mean, it sounds so McCarthyite, but mm -hmm. one one quote from one of his minders said, what we're trying to do is identify the pockets of independence and seize them. So, you know, predictions, he'll pardon the conspirators in the January you yeah. know, coup, they'll pardon himself. He'll then start investigating Biden and officials that pass that election as, as, as OK, abandon NATO, end the aid to Ukraine, and basically climate change goes over your shoulder. So the cheery note, the only cheery note. <laughs> yes. I mean, the only thing out of this, because if that is what we're heading for, you just think, my God. But. You know, the point, I mean, Jonathan Friedland was making was now, you know, Europe looking at this now needs to think, right, we just need to kind of person up here. There's no way, you know, there's been a long tradition of relying on the US for an awful lot of stuff. Indeed, we might get on to discussing oh, yes. the Yemen Houthis situation, which seems to be, you know, if the US moves, Britain just moves in tandem. And that's a pattern that we'll keep up without thinking about it too much. You know, so. That's the dance that we've been in. And what needs to happen now is Europe needs to get its own everything together. It needs to cooperate the hell out of everything so that there's not, you know, it, there's no rattling around. There's going to have to be the action, particularly, you know, on defence. There's going to have to be a European defence force, which actually we've talked about before. Um, because, you know, once even if, if, if uh, Trump doesn't pull out of NATO, he will, you know, he will abandon the principle yeah. that all for one, one for all kind of thing. So he's not going to basically come to Ukraine's defense. He actually in, described the initial uh, bits of the Russia's invasion as genius. So the, the only thing that there is for that is now for Europe to detach itself completely from that kind of thinking and do what it should always have done, really, which was to get your our act together, since we yeah. still see ourselves as Europeans. And, you know, Friedland's 
payoff line in that whole thing was, and there's the nonsense of Brexit. You know, laid yet yeah. again another facet of the of the nonsense of Brexit, because what we need now is unbelievable levels of real cooperation in Europe. And we've, of course, walked in the opposite direction. But it is not cheery. No. And just to add to the, the, the general misery, it is European elections this year. And the patterns, I mean, they are odd patterns across Europe, but there is a significant move to the right. I mean, even within mainstream central centrist conservative parties who are pandering to the right and as we've spoken about before if you go around pandering to the right by taking on more their policies there is a tendency amongst voters to say well i'm going to go for the full fat version but Mm. these european elections that are coming up are going to be absolutely significant in the terms of the direction that uh, the the european union takes because the, the the direction of travel is done by the political heads of state if you like but that these and these change as well. So, and it's a massive year in terms of elections, but the European one, incredibly significant from what you're saying. I mean, I go back, I mean, I was I was just reflecting on this with the, the slavish way that the Keir Starmer's Labour Party just goes along. I mean, the, the, the foreign policy of the Labour Party is now appears to be exactly the same, more or less, as the foreign policy of the Conservative Party and running along the coattails of the US. But I'm old enough to remember when Harold Wilson refused to send British troops to Vietnam. A significant move at that point. When the Australians did it, but the British, Harold Wilson said, no, we are not sending British troops to Vietnam. And that was a, a massive foreign policy decision taken, but he didn't ride on the coattails. Whereas Starmer just seems to be uh, going along with whatever, whatever the current US uh, regime says. And I don't know if you noticed, Leslie, the fact that uh, there seems to be a vault fast from previous Labour Party policy on uh, the, the two-state solution, where uh, was under Corbyn, the, the Labour Party said that the, if they became the government, they would immediately recognise the existence of a Palestinian state unilaterally. Starmer has now turned around and said, no, no, we're not going to do that. What we're going to do is uh, we will recognise uh, the existence of a Palestinian state fundamentally after negotiations when Israel accepts the concept of a two-state solution. Problem with that is Likud, Netanyahu, have explicitly said they've got absolutely no interest in a two-state solution. And, you know, that, 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 that's the thing. I mean, you can, and what, what, what the, uh, the, the, the shadow minister said was, oh, we're not going to engage in T-shirt politics, which is an absolutely damning, damning indictment. Yeah of the perception that they have of the significance of what's happening to the Palestinian people and the role that international pressure can bring to bear. Right, and that's my that that's that's that one there, which kind of took well, us off that on the elections. Well, no, but but actually, um, you know, I, I didn't watch Laura Kinsberg because I Neither am in a I. blood pressure <laughs> area, but uh, apparently on that stormer said that you know he's rode back from um a commitment to reviewing arms sales to the saudis yep and now he's he's you know kind of saying there's no inconsistency about that and you know whatever and and then of course there's the other point about about promising that he would consult parliament before agreeing to military action and then he has basically backed the tories yeah. um you know strike on the houthis without it coming coming through Parliament first. And I mean, uh, you know, S- S- Stephen Flynn asked a lot of pretty yes. good questions, but I suppose didn't really question hugely, uh, you know, the, 
whether or not that the actual action was justified. The thing that I found quite um, interesting was, this probably sounds a bit disrespectful, but these old guys basically who used to be ambassadors and whatever, a lot of them are, you you know, you hear the name Sir Richard Dalton Mm -hmm. and you're thinking, I'm not holding my breath here. Yeah. But wow. I mean, these guys, because they do kind of know where, you know, I was going to say the bodies are buried, but then in this respect, you just, you know. Yeah. Um, he was a he was an ambassador to Iran and Libya and he was posted in Jerusalem. So he's kind of looked at all of that. And actually, this was another very good interview on the weekend. Good morning, Scotland, um, where he said, you know, this claim that there was no choice. And he just says this is it, this is rubbish. He says it's taking us for fools to say there was no choice. Um, he's saying, you know, people who go to war always say they have no choice. And what they mean is we have no choice given the previous options we've taken. And in Britain's case, the choice has always been to follow the Americans or whatever they do. So, I mean, that was, you know, when everybody else was slightly kind of hesitating and not really sticking the boot in too hard. This guy who is the former ambassador was kind of straight in there and completely linking this whole thing together with the situation in the, you know, in the the, the greater Middle East with the Israel Gaza situation, which everyone else is at pains to kind of say, oh, no, you know, that's that's all too complicated. So, um, you you know, there's there's another side that needs to be taken by some outspoken party within British culture. And it it looks like, as ever, it's going to have to be the SNP. Because, yeah. you know, there's nobody else even questioning any of this stuff in case it doesn't look patriotic enough. Well, I mean, that, that's that's the whole thing. Everybody's now wrapping, them, wrapping themselves in the flag. I mean, I saw a marvellous cartoon in the New York Times, which is uh, you can see these airborne troops about to parachute in. And the sergeant says to the to the to the private, is this your first election campaign, young man? Lo and behold. Oh, I mean, I, that, that just said it all to me. Mm. There's nothing that galvanises support for the establishment more and the support for a government more than a good going war. You know, and, I mean, and when, when these guys are saying, I mean, I don't know if anybody else got this, but when, you know, Rishi Sunak and Cameron or whoever are saying this is proportionate and, you know, using these this kind of very careful language. And to be fair. This has gone to the UN Security Council and yeah. got a, a vote. The Russians and I think Chinese abstained, so they didn't vote against. So essentially, the legals were in place to make this possible. Whether this politically helps anybody, um, I mean, again, Richard Dalton was saying the British are acting as if this strike won't provoke a bigger war because yeah. of words. And it's like, you know, just because you think what you've done is proportionate, do you, do you think the Houthis are going to kind of go, oh, OK. So, of course, what they've done since then is whacked an American boat to show. I mean, this is this is right up their road, you know, is to make them look credible. They are they gaining a reputation as the only Arab actors that are willing to act against Israel. That pulls in support in the same way that we've seen happen through all sorts of groups labeled terrorists who do horrible things. Um, they they gain in profile from being attacked by Britain and yeah. America particularly. So it's it's kind of pretty depressing. And of course, the question that's that's there is, um, you know, as soon as you've intervened once and then they basically come straight back, as they have done, and whack an American ship or whatever, are you going to do it again? 
And where's where's the logic gone? Because if this, you know, is a proportional thing to send a message, whatever, that sounds like if you were naive enough to think that striking somebody would give a message to anyone, it sounds like your message hasn't really got through. So what do you conclude from that, that perhaps you didn't strike hard enough? So do you do, you know, I mean, I don't know. It's just very depressing. It is because it's that that whole thing about the escalation in the Middle East. And when Grant Sharps turned around and said that it had nothing at all to do with Palestine, merely because of the distance between Gaza and where the the actions were taking taking place on, I think it's the Red Sea. And he said, oh, that's four and a half thousand kilometres away. Can't possibly have anything to do with it. What utter naivety to turn around and say there could not be a, an ideological or an opportunity an opportunistic mm-hmm. uh, aspect to it. That would actually be said, well, look, that's what's happening there. And what we are trying to do, I mean, and the Houthis are Iran aligned. They're based in Yemen. They were fighting a rebellion in which we supported the Saudis and created what the UN referred to last year as the worst humanitarian crisis. I mean, with 21.6 million people in dire need of humanitarian existence in the Yemen. And we still sold the Saudis the arms. And I mean, it's one of these things, again, it's the, the complexity and the ability with you've got the, the, the spreading out with of Gaza, of this conflict into Lebanon and the Yemen. And then what is the, back to Vietnam, what is the domino effect that can take place within that framework? And the Houthis have been, have been recruiting enormously, but there was a potential apparently for some, uh, for, a, for a peace accord to be reached between the Houthis and the Saudis that was progressing. But that seems to have gone by the board as well, just to cheer everybody up. But mm-hmm. we, yeah, we, we, we don't know what's going to happen there. Some analysts have said, oh, it's gone by the board. Some analysts say, well, hang on a minute here. Uh, they might seek closer relations with Saudi Arabia, you know. So, but again, it is, it is, inc- it is that whole thing of the spread of the initial injustice, which either gives spurious legitimacy or genuine legitimacy to the actions that the, the groups like the Houthis take. Yeah, and if, if people are saying, you know, yeah, the Houthis are being basically opportunistic about all of this, well, I don't know, what are our motives, actually? I mean, yep. our motives are trying to preserve... Um, Goods, oil, gas, everything yep. coming easily and quickly to us uh, from one part of the world to the West. Uh, so, I mean, if you're if you're looking at it from anybody else's perspective, that looks pretty instrumental and kind of like you know we sit and figure out absolutely our governments figure out and with reference to Israel, uh, what's in our interests to support or to question, and then we you know we start digging picking holes. In other slightly constructed arguments from mm-hmm. other parts of the world, uh, but but I mean, good old South Africa, you know, yes. um, International Court of Justice, and these guys have put together a, a, by all accounts, a totally well, obviously not watertight, but tremendously strong case yeah. for for suggesting that Israel has committed genocide. That the downside to all of this is that actually proving that would take apparently three or four years. But there can be provisional measures in the meantime if the case looks like it's got enough legs to sort of, you know, require some better behaviour from Israel. But still, you know, what's being suggested is kind of very, you know, it's very poor. And the Israelis have already kind of basically put their fingers up to it. And and the argument they have is kind of, you know, there's a war on and anything's justified. 
I mean, I heard a, a very interesting commentator pointing out the irony that the Genocide Convention was created in 1940 during a war uh, in which the appalling actions against Jews generated a convention and people were able to see that the Jews had been persecuted and, you know, annihilated in many cases in the middle of a war and completely separate to the war. You know, that that, that, that verdict was quite possible. So, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see kind of what comes out of that. Um, yeah, but still, yeah. that's that's as good yeah. as it gets. Yeah, well, I mean, what I found, I mean, I, I, I watched as much of it as I could as possibly bear, I mean, when I could find it. I mean, it was easy enough to find the Israeli defence being put up on the mainstream media, but there we go. I think people would realise that. Uh, what I found was that what we were being expected to do by the Israeli uh, legal team was not believe what we'd actually heard from the Israeli government and the Israeli war cabinet uh, to actually to actually turn and say, well, when we said Amalek, and when you look Amalek up in, in the Bible, it talks about the total destruction of a people in the Old Testament, total destruction, men, women, children, everything they own, their animals, their crops, total destruction. And we're meant to turn and say, ah, but we didn't mean that. No, 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 no. We didn't mean that. And it is just that whole thing of, I mean, it's the, the term of gaslighting. They're, they're pre- currently, continually presenting sp- uh, what they claim to be is, don't believe what you hear, believe what we're telling you. And it's it's one of these ones where when you do see like David Cameron turning around saying, well, I'm not a lawyer, I couldn't tell you if they're doing this, I couldn't tell you if they're doing that. It sometimes gets simulated. Just the fact is... Where does everyone have to think politically and strategically in within this framework? Where are the people at the highest levels of government and the highest levels in political parties, no matter which political party, who will turn around and say, other than those, again, it's been straightforward from the SNP. Other than them, where are the people turning around and saying at the highest levels, this is a humanitarian disaster. We can all see it for what it actually is. Can we stop with the pussyfooting? Can we stop with the, what was referred to by uh, the, the Labour shadow minister from the Middle East as T-shirt politics? Can we stop referring mm. to it that and look at the humanitarian disaster that is going on? And it's just on a human basis. I cannot, I cannot, I cannot fathom. I genuinely cannot fathom it. Yeah, and and kind of, I mean. It strikes me that British politics, maybe everywhere, but I think we're at a bad end of this, races immediately to the scene of an accident, not the cause of it. Yeah. So, you know, what they're what. what, And so that way you just keep having accidents. And you'd think, I mean, I think most members of the population will see. And it's of course, it's easy from a distance to see that you have to figure out how the Palestinians get a state in some long-term basis. And by God, is this going to be hard? But then, you know, those of us who are a bit older have lived through um, South Africa. I mean, it's tremendously yes. ironic that it is South Africa that's now able to act as the kind of almost moral guardian of the world yep. when South Africa was, you know, beyond the pale during oh, apartheid. Yeah. And it's not a perfect state at all, you know, but it has got to uh, it has removed apartheid, at least uh, from from the state. And it is now got a a very strongly functioning legal system that has seen a kind of role for itself where others dare not tread. 
So things can be tackled. And this kind of, um, you know, kind of almost despair and nihilism. And Israel is this special case that the, the Middle East will never get solved. I mean, we how can we as people um, accept that? I mean, I know it, I know it'll end up being the case that people will say, well, it's the energy that's needed to do it. The political focus, the political energy, mm-hmm. and you can see how easy that 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 kind of commodity gets to drift drifts anyway. Because here we are, not talking about Ukraine at all, no. not talking about the climate crisis, you know, not talking. There's so many biggies sitting there, um, and it's kind of like people. It's easier to just sit and look at. Oh, I don't know. You know, is it an outrage that poor things is being set in a film yeah. or something without being yeah. based in Glasgow? Because you can get your head around that. This other, these other things, we know they're more important. But when you see so much evasion at a high level, with no one even telling it like it is, which is why it's so important for the SNP and Stephen Flynn, who does this very well in particular, yes. to just keep saying it like it is, because it. It basically keeps that some level of political debate and awareness going with people not drifting off into, you know, sort of culture wars, basically. Yeah, because Stephen Flynn, I mean, he was praised, I think, by the very same ambassador, former ambassador that you mentioned, by turning around and saying, Stephen Flynn asked the questions, what next? What happens now? And he said, these are brilliant. I mean, that's the question that should be asked. Where do we go from here? And... Very, very, very impressive. I mean, but I, I, I find Stephen Flynn very impressive on on most things, other than his apparent support for a, a joint ground share between Dundee and Dundee United. Ah, uh, but the, Pat. the I know, but I, I've got, I've got. I'm Honestly, guessing, before I what slip would, into what, the, what would be the downside of that? By the way, oh yeah, yeah. I, there is economically, logically, it makes absolute sense. But emotionally, no, I'm sorry. Right. That's Canadice is, is my spiritual home and that's where it will remain. <laughs> but this is but this is kind of I was thinking about all of this because I was thinking about <clears throat> what is with Americans that they're look like they're about to put Donald Trump back into the White House and preside over a dictatorship. Because okay. that's the size of what is is basically coming. Yeah. And it's much the same as then you look across the border with a set of voters who basically elected Boris Johnson, who had wrongen written over his forehead, as far as most Scots were concerned from the start. And a Brexit that was clearly nonsense, which we just all cheerfully voted the other way. And it leaves you with a sort of puzzlement because we're all humans. We have similar instincts. We can Mm -hmm. be activated. You know, we have particular political cultures. That's what drives the bid for independence. But still, you kind of look at this and think, what is actually going on here? And I, when I've tried to look at the analysis of what's going on, the same thing. Do you remember when we spoke to Prof. Richard Wynne Jones, who the Welshman yeah. who'd done all the study about the English? And he found that that English voters particularly felt utterly ignored and unheard. Yes. Nobody was listening to them. The same thing was coming out from the states that they, 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 these voters yeah. basically don't feel heard. Now, I still don't know where to go with this because, you know, what it it almost sounds childish. You know, it sounds like because these are adults, very many of them with decent incomes. You know, it's it's not like people who are living in trailers. There's people who are well educated, scarily enough, um, people with reasonable incomes who are feeling not heard. And you, you begin to think, well, what is it that would what does it take for you to feel heard then? Just a man who comes in, he'll trash the place, 
but he'll echo the very words that are the worst fears in your heart. And that's enough for you. Is, is that what it is? You just need to, to hear the words said strongly by somebody who looks like they believe it and you'll wear whatever else comes with it. You know, I, I mean, I don't know, but and then you look at, well, mind you, let's get off this kind of complete kind of negativity. Um, I don't know if this is positive or negative, but there's this YouGov poll as well, which is predicting yes. the Labour sort of landslide. Mm-hmm. And that's that's an interesting one because it was actually commissioned by all these right wing bams in the Tory yes. party. Yeah, well, so, yes. Motivation, you know, so like, Leslie, motivation. Well, but exactly. You know, so they have decided that we're going down and that what what's needed to happen is the, the clarity of the Tories losing needs to be made absolutely crystal clear to Conservative voters and MPs or whatever, so that they can basically put massive pressure on tomorrow, I think, on yeah. the Rwanda bill yeah. to make to take a more hardline approach. Because echoing Trump, the more that you get into the casual racism and the kind of, hey, we just crack down. It's really simple. They're not us. We're us. They're them. The more you get into that, the more you've got some chance of kind of winning over your your base, um, which is kind of quite <laughs> quite amazing that. Uh, you know, a poll that has, is is basically suggesting that the Labour will win a completely unprecedented uh, mm-hmm. level of win uh, come the election is something that Tories actually commissioned deliberately. Yeah, I mean, that's what I, we've got to. Yeah, because uh, your friend and mine, Lord David Frost, writing the Telegraph, said the polls findings were stunningly awful and the party was facing a 1997-style wipeout if they were lucky. He said a com- combination of tactical voting and any decision by Nigel Farage to return to frontline politics could lead the Tories facing an extinction event. He claimed the only way the party could avoid defeat, and you hit the nail on the head, be as tough as it takes on immigration, reverse the debilitating increases in tax, end the renewables tax on energy costs, and much more. And I like the much more bit there. That's that's just thrown in there for good measure, etc., etc., etc. But I mean, it, it, it is that it is that thing before we get on to the the potential implications for for Scotland and the SNP's electoral, electoral strategy. It is that whole thing of I don't think I know in 1997. I was tap dancing at the result. You know, I, it was up till Portillo. I thought, this is absolutely fantastic. It's the dawn of a new age. I remember, um, have I got news for you? And in his lip saying, says, what are we going to talk about now? There's nothing to laugh about. And it didn't take very long mm. for that whole uh, bloom to fade. But I, 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 I know, and I know I have, I have, I have moved on very many things since 1997. Uh, in particular, Scottish independence. But again, I, I I wonder if anybody has got that sense of this could be a moment now, given the fact of what what does the Labour Party now stand for? What are we going to get from that? And that does bring us on to the the the, the competition that's going to take place up here between the Labour Party saying the only way to get rid of the Tories is to vote Labour, and the SNP turning around and saying, well, hang on a minute here, what is Labour standing for? You know, and everywhere, you know, the, the, and in Scotland where the Tories are, are leading, the SNP's in second place. If you want to have a, a more left of centre attempt at governance, elect the SNP, who may be able to hold uh, the Labour Party, speak to the fire in terms of more progressive politics. 
Well, only, you know, in the sense that there will be at least a, a view articulated that most Scots will recognise as being roughly smack bang centred to what they think. But, you know, sadly, yeah. I mean, it looks as if, you know, from from this, it does look as if Labour will will do will do pretty well and we'll have a majority that doesn't depend on Scottish votes at all. Yeah. Now, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's a, I spoke to a number of people who thought I kind of missed it. Um, Stephen Flynn's sort of thing of, you know, the, the, the Labour, Labour don't need actually SNP yeah. votes, uh, Scottish votes to, to win. And was basically saying, you know, there's it was basically bidding for the sort of anti-Tory vote in Scotland yes. and saying, look, you know, we, we can also keep these guys in place. Now, maybe this is just because I have spent a, a kind of week and a bit more in last year trotting around with something that is, you know, the Denmark film, which is completely not as little as saying that we just don't want Tories. Yeah. You know, it's basically saying, look, here is a kind of society that you might want to have. And boy, is it going to be difficult unless we really change quite a lot of our outlooks and notice about how really fundamental things go on to produce or make possible or impossible the kind of society Scots all think they want in their heads. And having watched audiences now, and they've been great, actually, Dundee was sold out. Dun, uh, hang on a minute. Balach, by gum. Uh, there was 150 people in Balach uh, and a, a really frisky de debate. And there's one bit in the film where there's the the climate change minister, Dan Jorgensen. And really, every time, you know, after it, people say, we just want that guy, you know, because mm -hmm. everything he's saying quite naturally about the obviously you want to have people happy because happy people are more productive. They feel healthier. So they are w more willing to trust one another. When you've got social capital, you can use it to create a welfare state that supports everyone, which then, you know, tucks people back into supporting it because the services are good enough that everyone uses them instead of opting out. And people are either by this point biting the carpet or just nodding their heads off because that's that's what you know he easily is just you know sashaying through the kind of outlook but it's not just that it's a wannabe outlook that's how they run their damn government you know um when they say that they're going to he says at a point where he says mm, we've decided not to issue any more oil and gas licenses even though the Danes actually are the largest oil and gas producers. They've got the you know the biggest stake in the mm -hmm. North Sea in the EU, which is obviously because we're out. If we were in, we would have been out. But so they're not. What I'm saying is they're not bit players. It's not nothing for them to say. Nope, that's it. No more licenses. 2050, the end. There will be no more oil and gas extracted. And there's a bit where he says because you know we have this very go ahead approach that we're trying to persuade the world to move on climate change. So how would it look? If we were basically still extracting oil and just selling it to other people and exporting the problem. And, mm -hmm. you know, from his point of view, he's kind of saying, well, obviously it would look crap, wouldn't it? So we couldn't do that because it wouldn't work. And unfortunately, in, in Britain, everyone's going, yeah, what's the problem? Well, not everyone, you know, south of mm -hmm. the border, perhaps people are going, yeah, we, we can do that. We can quite happily you know, chair a COP26 summit conference and, you know, be, want to teach the world to sing and then open a bloody coal mine a month later. We can easily have what we say are the world's highest targets for whatever climate related and um, then change them because of a by-election result. So, you know, Britain is doing this kind of, you know, thinks it's clever, double, you know, double take 
actually sort of really hiding in plain sight as untrustworthy actors in -hmm. just about every field and thinking somehow that people, because we're so special, which sits Mm -hmm. at the base of it all, we will still be, you know, attracting investment, attracting confidence, able to bringe in and discuss trade deals, which are completely off the table with whoever wins the American election, by the way. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, this is the enormity of that whole problem, that whole outlook. So coming back to the SNP, is that the best you can do for this election? Really? You know, that actually you can kind of keep the Tories out as well by voting for us. It's a sort of like anti-Tory me too. I, yeah. Maybe I'm just hopelessly, naively something or other. But come on, can nobody do a vision thing that just people hear you say the words of the kind of hope they have? Because that's also what is vital to motivate people, not just a sort of technocratic, look, we can get in there and muscle for a bit of the vote and some policy wonk says, yeah, we've got one and a half percent more from this and that and whatever. It's kind of... You know, with with something that is very related to a cause, there has to be an aspect of visionary hope put into it by someone who is able to do that, not suggest it will be easy, but sounds absolutely plausible doing it. Um, And I just wish one or t'other of the leaders available would pony out and start doing this consistently now. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, in my rant previously to, to 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 you coming in there, that's that's the point I was trying to get at, which is the fact of it's not just an anti-Tory vote. It's that, as you say, it's the vision of what what could be, and these are the policies that we believe in. This is the kind of country that we could be. And when Anna Sarwar turns around and says, "Well, Scotland will have a seat at the table," I want the table. I don't want a seat. Mm. I want the table. And it is up to the leadership to turn around and say, this is what we can potentially have. And let's have no bones about it. I know it has been said by the SNP leadership that no matter how many seats we win at Westminster previously, uh, that was never counted to be a mandate for another independence referendum, the potential for independence. So if they lost seats, surely that that, that wouldn't negate the, the drive for independence when you've got approximately 50% of the population who still believe in independence. And it's up to the SNP to square that in terms of getting the vote out and making and getting the people to vote. But the, the, the other thing about it is, is that we do know that it will be used. Every single election in Scotland is an independence referendum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the yeah. plea I would make to people was hold your nose if you, if you disagree. And I, I find it very, very difficult. I, I, I've always disagreed with political parties that I voted for, but it was the Labour Party from, and, and the SNP. I don't continually disagree with things they believe in because it's, it's, a, it's a platform of policies and things that they stand for. But at the core of when I voted Labour and I was a Labour Party activist, I believed in the socialism, which I believe is endemic and entrenched within the Labour Party for a more progressive and a fairer society. And I believe that the SNP, I want an independent Scotland. And politically, I don't care what anybody else says, politically, the SNP is the only game in time. And it will be dealt with as a referendum. And if the SNP loses significant numbers of seats, which isn't entirely, when you look into the figures, 
contained within the poll, you know, it's not a foregone conclusion. If the SNP, as you say, manage to go out there, engage with the electorate, make it much more than just, oh, keep the Tories out, because that's playing into Labour's hands, and do come up with a vision that brings together the belief in independence and voting for the SNP in the forthcoming general election. Yeah, because it's like, just as you say, I mean, I I have a little thing when I'm at home that, that if I do any, you know, I'm on any programme or whatever, it just says independence is the question. Because sometimes I can go down rabbit holes and think that I've been asked on to talk about, <laughs> uh, you know, my view or a Scottish view on yeah. Gaza or, you know, any of the world events. In the end, no. All anyone wants to, it'll always come back to independence because once the cat is out of the bag, that is a that's a sexy cat, right? <laughs> I mean, that cat gets attention from everyone, from whichever way you want to do it. It either in in Madden infuriates people or it enlivens people. It's a lively thing. You know, and to not to, to be scared of this lively thing is yep. sort of scared of the possibilities that it brings with it. Absolutely. But you can in the same way as, you know, um, on paper, Ron DeSantis should have started to win everything, but was reptilian and creepy. <laughs> you need to be someone who absolutely can convey this you know, conviction. There's no point doing it if you're not there. And I mean, just coming back to the you know, the opposite of it. I'm finding maybe this is just me looking at, you know, my timeline because on Twitter and things like that, as I mentioned before, there is just the most unbelievable bollocks basically mm-hmm. being put up anytime there's a mention of Denmark. I mean, just for any clarity, we are not Denmark. With one bound, we cannot become Denmark. But you can, you know, in anybody's life, you would tend to think that looking at sort of what might be best practice mm-hmm is a better way to think about how to improve your game than just dwelling constantly on your problems and thinking that some set of British tools, all of which have produced a pretty cranky old car, are going to get the thing jalopy working. But here's a stoter that just came came up yesterday. Um, somebody commented, Danish people aren't fourth generation clearances or potato famine grievance chimps. I think that's you, Pat. Um, that me, they yeah. don't think welfare is the answer. They understand self-worth and education. Work is how to develop a society. They don't dump litter and shit in the streets as Scottish nationalists do. We aren't Danish. Now, you sort of, like, I don't know where you begin with that, basically, yes. you know, because actually they totally think welfare is the answer. I mean, that th- one of the most moving things in the film is how everyone interviewed about something else ends up coming back to saying, well, we don't mind, for example, they're about their retirement age is about to move from 67 to 69. And the guy who was describing this, who himself will get caught in that, was saying, yeah, but, you know, if that's what it takes to keep the welfare state going, I mean, it's extraordinary. Of course, they have self-worth and belief in education, but that is not the opposite side of the coin of a very strong belief in a well-oriented welfare system. No. So this is where I just want us to get beyond a lot of these just badges, you know, um, to try to understand how people organise themselves. And it's not a t- total direct lift. It just prompts you to start challenging things that's here. That's thinking. And that's all. Yeah, thinking. That's it. Thinking, Begora. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to put an end to that. And that's a that's a yeah, that's, from a four, that. that's from a that's from a fourth generation famine escaping. <laughs> 
Chimp. Grievance chimp there. Oh, dear God. You know, it's never far from it, is it? You know, you, you, well, actually, you say, I'm, a, I'm a fourth generation clearance Scottish. Clearance Scot, yes. Grievance chimp. And you're the potato famine grievance I'm a chimp. chimp. So oh, we, God, we actually yeah. are absolutely there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and we're talking about the, the, the potential for the general election that Rishi Sunak said will be sometime in the autumn. It might be sooner than that, or will it? Because we, we've been down this road before with the Rwanda vote. I mean, and it's the, one of the problems is it's an absolutely scurrilous policy, which, fingers crossed, will never come to fruition, but is going to be totemic in terms of whether Sunak retains the confidence of the five families, the potential 70 rebels, uh, 30p Lee et al. within the Conservative Party, and will he lose that vote? And that's going to be in the next the next couple of days. And it, it kind of pains me to actually go down the Westminster bubble analysis line, but it's a significant one because there is a potential there because if he does lose that vote, that it could be an early general election. Yeah, and I mean, you know, who who knows? You would have to steep yourself in the politics of, you know, people like Aaron Banks, that kind of, well, yeah. you know, Brexit donor, you know, kind of guy who actually commissioned another poll by Servation that oh. the Sunday Times um, published. And that was the one that suggests that showed that um, on current voting intention, reform would actually come first in Clacton, Begorra, if Nigel Farage <laughs> comes back as the right wing party's leader. Mm. So this is this is people with enough money to commission a poll to drive reality, if you like, um, you know, with everybody now hanging on. Is Nigel Farage coming back or is he no? And on the other hand, as you say, um, this is all hanging over the vote as to whether or not Rw- the Rwanda will be declared a safe place. Yeah which is what the debate is tomorrow. Yep. And, you know, it's it, it looks like there's about 50 Tory MPs, including Liz Truss and Suella Braverman. I hoped I would never even have to say her name again. But, um, you know, she's in there. They've got some amendments that are trying to harden the bill up. Now, you might remember, we all thought that the last time around in November or something, that actually these this bunch of rebels, I think it was about... 40 or no 28 of them it just took but Mm -hmm. whatever this bunch would actually vote against the Rwanda thing and absolutely throw the cat amongst the pigeons um this is not the sexy cat of independence this is a different one so (laughs) (laughs) um, and then brave Sir Robin ran away that'll be a Monty Python reference for the teenagers you know in that these guys just decided to abstain so they didn't actually and everyone thought well yeah these guys talk a good game eh? and look when it comes to it they just basically bottle it yeah now bottle it or nursing their wrath to keep it warm to keep all our burns quotes in in tandem for burns night which it sounds like it could be the latter. So these guys are waiting for this stage and the future stages, but this stage, third reading, just takes 28 Tory MPs voting against Sunak to basically create a defeat for him. Mm-hmm. And and it doesn't sound like Sunak's going to move on, you know, the, the trying to make yeah. the, the bill uh, harden it up in respect of the you know, the right winger's aim, which is to ignore international law. He's got the stage of saying that, no, we're not withdrawing from European Convention of Human Rights. That's a stage too far. The Rwandans won't wear it. And it's a blooming 
great moment in life uh-huh. where a place that basically has been judged by the uh, British court to be unsafe to send refugees has nonetheless got whatever level of moral gumption is necessary to tell the British that they won't accept being outside the international legal framework. You know, that's how barking this has become. But anyway, it's it. you're quite right. It is worth watching because who knows if this time they will go over the top and mm-hmm. vote against him. And then what happens? Fuck ends. Fuck ends? Fuck ends because it, it would be, from my perspective, I mean, I'm just thinking about it. What may concentrate their minds wonderfully is the... Uh, is that latest super poll from YouGov? Yeah. I mean, it would be Turkey's voting for Christmas. Or are they willing to be that kind of group, yeah, but, ginger but group that says, well, to hell with it. Let's just destroy it now. Well, we've got a chance. It sounds like that because they're the ones that blooming commissioned it. I mean, yes. they, you know, the detail <laughs> of this is is interesting because it was published, a lot of this in the Telegraph, where it's a bit of a giveaway. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's apparently this this poll, the YouGov poll, is a multi-level regression and post-stratification poll, don't you know, All which right. is 14,000 people commissioned, you know, surveyed, not your usual 1,000 or whatever. It's It takes several weeks to put together it's the most expensive way you can sample public opinion, but the most accurate. And it's believed to have cost uh, these these to- right wing Tories tens of thousands of pounds to do, which is obviously a mere bagatelle for them. If it gets them timing wise, it gets the Rwanda vote looking totemic um, yep. for whether or not the Tories are basically hard, horrible and racist enough to pick up their core vote. Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> well, I hope everybody's uh, everybody's uh, really cheery after after this episode. I mean, as I say, just <laughs> yeah. I, I I'm going to. I mean, I I know I come up with recommendations for movies, but uh, uh, I, I went to see uh, the boys in the boat. Uh, this uh, this week, uh, directed by George Clooney, based on a true story of the Washington University. Now, this may sound very esoteric. The Washington University eight rowing crew. And what it is, it's a, I'm, I'm a sucker for these underdog sporting stories. You mean, remember the well, Titans? You played hockey, a, come on. Yeah, yeah anyway, <laughs> so yeah, that's an underdog sport at the best of times. And I'm a sucker for these sports stories. But it's a tremendous, I read the book previously, but it's a tremendous story about the Washington University guys. And they come from, they're working class, some of them living in uh, the hobo, hobo settlements in the 1930s. And they, they sign up to become a crew, uh, not having a road before, on the basis that they're going to get some place to live and food to eat and a job. And lo and behold, it's the, the true story of how they overcome privilege, they overcome prejudice, they go to the Olympics, and then they beat the Nazis. And it's just, it is, it has got, it's ticking, tick, 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 tick boxes. It is not the most startling movie ever made in the world. But if you want to actually be sitting there, and again, I knew the outcome, but the people in the audience were going, come on, come on, come on. When they were, because of the tactics they used, they wanted, because they didn't know the outcome. They did not know the outcome of the of the race. And I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it's a true story. And it's a, it's, it's very uplifting. And George Clooney does a solid job. And he introduces some very subtle things about about uh, racism as well that are, that are in there, brilliantly done, subtly done. 
And uh, it's a it's a good job. And it's one of these middle range movies that people said weren't made anymore. You had to make superhero films or all these little strange independent ones. But no, this is a mainstream, middle of the road, solid movie. And it will cheer you up no end. Good. Right. Well, well done that, man. I, I trilled last week, didn't I, about uh, audiobooks? Yes. Did I? No, yeah, because no, now you? I'm... Well, no, no, you didn't. Did I not? God, no. well, I've, I've sort of, yeah, discovered... Oh, I like audiobooks. Aud- audiobooks. And, geez, you know, so, okay, well behind the curve on all of this, really. Um, And I've, I've been basically read Sarah Sheridan's The Fair Botanists, which is utterly brilliant. And I'm sure I trilled about this because um, I would have actually got the name correct of the one woman who basically does about 10 different voices um i think her is catherine mccarran mccarran's her surname she'll be famous to anybody who's a um, an audiobook person because she seems to be the go-to person mm-hmm. she's scottish herself but my god it's unbelievable she can get she can have a young man talking to an edinburgh woman mm-hmm. talking to an english person that walks in and they're just having dialogue one from the other i mean quite apart from the book itself being brilliant and a way to understand what was happening in 18 i'm going to get my 18s wrong but it was around the time of george the fourth's visit sir walter scott's a character mm-hmm. and the botanic gardens in edinburgh are being formed and actually massive trees being hauled up leith walk the level of historical detail in it is a sort of thing that would go into an academic thing that nobody would possibly read. And I'm saying that as somebody who spent 12 years on one of those things. <laughs> um, but what, what these these books are able to do is just infuse the period. You know, all the little references are from a Scottish perspective. Uh, the accents, the, the words that people are using are absolutely of their time. And it's just the most beautiful kind of it's like bathing in Scottishness. Um, and there's German characters, you know, there's people from Firth of the Parish, but the bulk of it is where we live. We live in Scotland, you know. Yeah. And so these these tremendous d- discussions by about all sorts of variants of Scots speakers, quite naturally, with with um people doing the commentary who are st- I mean, it's a stunner to hear someone speak English and then, as you do, Pat, and then just effortlessly just you know move into completely convincing scots delivered by a whole variety of people of ages and whatever and now i've moved on to news of the dead by james robertson um again fabulous that's that's set in 1810 and that the the kind of sniffiness of the exchanges between really sort of fairly barbed kind of um country folk somewhere near forfort who are as <laughs> blooming tight with stuff and and kind of blunt basically as you like is absolutely hilarious really so yes i mean everyone will be going my god i've been in audiobooks for the last 400 years you know so yeah, i'm sure yeah. they'll have their own recommendations but be mm. brilliant really fantastic and as well as well done to the actors to the the authors the actors are and apparently getting an an, an innings you know at a time when yep a lot of, you know, a lot of, of conventional acting roles are kind of sometimes hard to get. So, yeah, that's my thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I, okay, this is, this is, and I, I don't mean to sound up myself, but I'm, I'm currently listening to Homer's Odyssey because that's the way it's meant. It's meant to be listened to. It's like mm. poetry. It's meant to be listened to. And I got into, I got into audio books when I lost my concentration span after having COVID. 
and it was really weird. I couldn't I couldn't read a book. I could read articles. Mm. I could read newspapers. I couldn't read a book. Now I'm back into reading again. Thanks very much. And I'm, I've got Toy Fight by Don Partison sitting here, gazing at me from the bookshelf as I'm just about to finish Fairport by Fair, Fairport, the history of Fairport Convention. Um, so, yeah, that is staring down at me, but I'm listening to to Homer's Odyssey. And you're absolutely right. It is the ability. But the funny thing about it is if you get the wrong narrator, the wrong reader. Oh, yeah. Mm, I know it puts you right off. The, puts you right off. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. Puts you right off. Yes. On that, it puts you right off note. And I hope you haven't been put right off by the, the cheeriness or rather <laughs> the, the cold-blooded analysis of everything that happened, in particular with Donald Trump's victory in the Iowa caucus yesterday. We'll see you next week, Charles. 